Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have Dr. Tom Garza. Um, you looked me up and down and said, Tovi. And Artemy Troitsky, a famed music critic and political commentator from Russia who currently resides in Estonia. What is the official working language of this conference? English, okay, okay. I'll try my best. If we're talking about rock, what role do you think rock did play? Indeed, rock plays a huge role. Cultural impact, emotional impact. It's like, you know, aquarium. Their influence has been tremendous. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. question that might kind of be a nice way to tie in the two episodes to each other. Uh, Artemi, when we had Dr. Garza on, kind of the first provocational question that I asked him was, okay, there's all these theories about why the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, everything from stinger missiles to economic collapse to, you know, just Gorbachev and the the liberal ideas that he had about Russia. Uh, But there's also kind of a lot of people who think that rock music and the cultural change was the one of the main uh, precipitants of the political change in, in Russia. And so I'd just kind of like to hear your, your opinion on, you know, what role did rock music play in the fall of the Soviet Union? All right. So there is, uh, there is a whole book by an English author and filmmaker named Leslie Woodhead, and it's called How the Beatles Rocked the Kremlin. And by the way, one very important note, Leslie Woodhead is in a hospital in Manchester in in the UK right now fighting with coronavirus. Wow. So I'm constantly in touch uh, uh, with his wife, uh, who is American, Regina Adelson, so she keeps me updated, but the situation is uh, is quite uh, tense. So let's all uh, wish all the best uh, to Leslie Woodhead. Now um, to the question. I think I think that of course politically or economically, uh, rock music and the Beatles and Machina Vremini and all these it did not have uh, a significant impact on the fall of the communist regime and the Soviet empire. But if we talk about cultural impact, and more wide than this, the emotional impact, then I'm pretty sure uh, that their influence has been tremendous. Because starting, uh, starting in the 60s and the 70s with rock music, and uh, the hippie style, and later the punk style, and so on, uh, it became obvious that uh, the Western cultural and lifestyle agenda became dominant in the Soviet Union. That the uh, young builders of communism, uh, you know, the, the the normal Soviet boys and girls, they've been no more with... uh, Pavka Karchagin or, you know, whoever, the heroes of the Soviet propaganda and so on. Their heroes were now, you know, those long-haired uh, guys who played uh, 
sometimes uh, uncomprehensible songs in English language to electric <laughs> guitars. The amount of those young people uh, was millions, millions and tens of millions. So a whole generation of Soviet youngsters were ready for something completely different. And they, and they understood that, you know, the most uh, important music, uh, you know, the best uh, literature and visuals and so on, it was elsewhere. It was not in the Soviet Union, but it was in the rotting West. And of course, you know, this feeling that life uh, zabugrom, uh, beyond beyond the hill uh, is more interesting and uh, and more fun. Uh, it was of course a very a very strong uh, emotional and also uh, I think intellectual uh, impact on uh, on on this young generation. And it was exactly this young generation who've been the you know, the generation of Perestroika and later in the 90s, the generation of, uh, of building of the new Russia. Well, unfortunately, this impact uh, <laughs> got lost somehow later mm-hmm. in the 21st century. But anyway, in the 80s, I think uh, this generation played the main role. And it's because, because those tens of millions of young people were prepared were prepared for freedom, for democracy, for uh, for another kind of culture, not necessarily socialist realism or, or whatever. It was, of course, you know, one of the most important reasons why uh, why the reforms have succeeded. You used the word fun to describe kind of what people were searching for and this idea that it was more fun over the hill. When you were working as a music journalist in the 80s, what would you say your primary motivation was? Were you looking for fun or did you have a more sort of, I don't know, I don't know the word, scholarly or intellectual role that you felt like you were filling when you were performing <laughs> this music journal? Okay, well, uh, Matvey, I would say this is an existentialist question, of course, (laughs) (laughs) sort of. And, uh, well, here I can tell you that that throughout all my life, I've been looking for interesting situations, beautiful girls, and fun, as you've just uh, formulated. I mean, I've never had I've never had any sense of mission or whatever. I just wanted to make my own life and the life of my friends more lively and more and more active, and also kind of culturally and emotionally more fulfilling. Mm. Uh, this was this was my main uh, motivation, and I'm I'm afraid I didn't I didn't think about anything more serious than that wonderful tom do you want to jump in oh i mean either of the toms (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Dr. Garza, we haven't heard from you yet, so I'm sure you'd have an interesting take on either of those questions. Thanks, uh, the other Tom. Uh, I Two things very quickly. First of all, just in this last comment that Art was making, which I'm, uh, I'm very taken with his answer in, in every respect, but I, I let my now getting even older memory uh, maybe remind him. So when, uh, which an event which I certainly remember better than he does, because for me, I was kind of fanboying all over the place, getting a chance for the first time in 86 to meet Art, quite quite by accident, actually, at a, a, the, in Leningrad. But I remember introducing myself to him in, in Russian, uh, him looking me up and down. He was still very much at that, I shouldn't, I'm sorry, Art, I shouldn't put you into the third person here, but uh, part, so pardon that because I know you're, we're actually still face to face here. <laughs> but I, I remember you, you mentioning, um, you looked me up and down and said this with that wonderful tone of the late Soviet period, just simply, almost in an accusatory, so who do you work for way? <laughs> And I just simply said that I was said Я аспирант из городского университета пишу диссертацию на эту тему. To which you then looked me again up and down and said, Ah, все объяснено, ученый. And I say that only because I wanted to go back to Matt's question about where, what your relationship then is to actually to the academy. And I, I wanted to say that I think your relationship to the academy has come a long way in the last 30 years. I'm very glad <laughs> now that you, you tend to embrace the academy and universities much more. You are now basically an adjunct professor in at least a dozen universities around the world. So uh, welcome, Professor Troitsky, to the academy now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, thank you. And uh, well, actually, I would never, I would never imagine, like back in uh, 1986, mm -hmm. that I could become a scholar because I hated school, <laughs> I hated university, I was the worst student. You know, I've studied economy. Uh, I've graduated. Uh, my uh, my diploma was on. Uh, Kibernetica, uh, the economy and cybernetics, <laughs> and and I and I have to confess uh, that uh, that I forgot everything about economy and cybernetics the day I've uh, you know I've uh, uh, got my diploma, and I would never think that I could end up as uh, uh, as a lecturer as. Nice. As as a person, uh, you know, who writes uh, uh, well books that maybe maybe labeled as uh, at least relatively scientific, because uh, well, subculture is definitely. Mm -hmm. I think it reads like a like a textbook, not as boring as most of them, but uh, but still, still, you know, it. it it does feel uh, like a textbook to me, at least. You know, it's very kind of uh, it's very detailed. It's uh, you know, it has no no journalistic ambitions and things like that. You know, I try I, I try to be objective there and and describe and partly analyze. You know the uh, you know what was happening with. Uh, Russian subcultures throughout two centuries and so on. So yes, in a way, it may be considered like a piece of scholarship. 
So uh, I couldn't agree more. I actually. would never imagine uh, this could happen. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say I think your your approach not only is very much a scholarly and academic approach. Uh, in response, actually, to the answer, the first answer you gave about the relation, or not the relationship, but the the impact of uh, more generally rock music on the Russian, the second Russian revolution, uh, from you know Gorbachev to the uh, to the collapse. It's an interesting, interesting point because I agree with everything you say, and my only addition to it would be maybe giving it a slightly academic spin of a number of theories around. Why is it that youth movements in particular seem to have this kind of effect on political movements? Uh, I'll speak just from even the United States perspective from as you started with the 60s and the Vietnam War and indeed the hippie movement and, and actually hippie verging on going really old school folk music, right? because it was Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell. Um, you know, these were the voices actually that for even for the folk people of the previous generation were actually the avant-garde for the for the for for uh, American youth but what what I want to get to is so this model of a disenfranchised youth whether we're talking about american young people in the 1960s russian youth in the uh, 1980s and and uh, early 1990s uh contemporary post-soviet russian youth there's this interesting model that you go from disenfranchisement to some kind of empowerment, that something catalyzes empowerment. And then after you get the sense back that you've been empowered to mobilization, that you become now an actual political force. That third step doesn't always happen. Yes. Right, it doesn't always happen. And what I, where I think rock music played in Russia and certainly in the United States, even I thinking in the very recent, the if you remember very, just a few years ago, I'm now blanking on the year, I want to say 2017, the Je suis, uh, the suis, <laughs> Je suis Charlie movement in, in uh, France after the terrorist bombings also had music behind them. Even watching this uh, response to COVID, we see all these viral videos of doctors from the Mayo Clinic singing John Lennon songs on the steps of the Mayo Clinic. I mean, music tends to be a kind of catalyst force to bring in that mobilization of whatever group of people, whether it's youth or other. And in Russia, Soviet Russia, now post-Soviet Russia, I think music is still playing that role. Your point, though, I think is exactly right, Art, is that the movement then from mobilization, or sorry, to, from empowerment to mobilization and all, doesn't always happen, that they don't always then go and vote, for example, as they could in contemporary Russian young people, I mean. I'll just make a short note. Well, I... I, I I do agree. I do agree uh, entirely with your analysis, and I think that catalyst is is probably the perfect word to describe what youth movements and uh, rock music done to the Soviet society at that time. But there's also one big difference. I mean, I think that... Uh, in America, of course, the role of young people in in direct political happenings of that era has been much stronger than the one in Russia. The only the only episode in contemporary Russian history, but it was a crucial episode, the most important episode, when uh, young people played a very important role, was in August 1991. I mean, if it wasn't 
young people who have surrounded uh, the White House and created, you know, some kind of life shield around uh, the White House uh, facing the tanks and, and, and armored cars and so on. Then, of course, you know, the whole history could uh, go in a different way. But unfortunately, after, after that glorious episode, Russian young people, again, for a couple of decades, uh, they went uh, <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> they went drinking. И я словно в темноте, но ты ни в чем не виноват. Ветер шепчет отпусти, но сердце знает наусусть. Мои песни о любви и пускай в них только кровь. Tom, I have just a comment on what you said. Uh, I think it we're seeing the way that music is once again playing a role in mobilization, and we're also seeing a lot of nostalgia during this coronavirus. And I was wondering, you know, you know, what is it about? this coronavirus that is kind of leading to this kind of out, outburst of nostalgia where we have people like, uh, you know, just one example is Boris Gribinshikov all of a sudden is putting out new music on his YouTube channel, you know, and his followers on there are saying, oh, you know, thank you so much, Boris, that you're not forgetting about us during these difficult times. What, what is the relationship between kind of uh, an, an event like this and nostalgia for, for those times? Right. There's a, a wonderful work, a, a whole series of work, actually, by an unfortunately late but brilliant scholar from Harvard, Svetlana Boyan, a Russian herself, actually, but uh, emigrated to the U.S. actually very at a very young age to do her education at Harvard. And she works in this area of, of nostalgia of two kinds, reflective and restorative, kind of good, good uh, nostalgia, bad nostalgia, but based at the core of the theory is that precisely in times of turmoil, we look then to the past to see what was good about it that we want to hold on to. Sometimes that's a very comforting thing to remind ourselves of how things were before, in this case, before the plague, before COVID-19, uh, what, what was it life like? And we hold on to the feelings we got when we heard that that Beatles song, or that uh, go more for a millennial generation for that Coldplay song, or what whatever your whatever your comfort music was for a period of time. And it doesn't matter whether you're an American, a Russian, a Syrian. Uh, as we watch, think a pandemic is an interesting situation in that respect because it really does show us kind of a global effect that is, for better or worse, universal. Is this reflex to uh, retreat a bit into one's past? cherry pick the things that we want to uh, reflect on and use those to hold on to to get us through until we're out of this this dark period and so I, I'm, I'm absolutely buoyed by the for from my generation in particular you know I get a lot of the okay boomers not just from the U.S. side but from the Russian side every time I say oh it's so great to hear Grevinchikov singing on YouTube and they go seriously Grevinchikov and yet these these uh, now Gen Zers are saying yeah my dad's music does have a kind of warmth to it so I'm, I love that. I love whether it's in, in, hearing Grebenshikov in, in in Moscow on, or I should say on, on YouTube. So it's all over the place now. He's even even his Facebook channel is playing these little clips that he's putting out. Or whether it's hearing the you know the doctors at the Mayo Clinic singing John Lennon. It's just this wonderful feeling of that song has the right lyrics at the right time to be hearing in this moment.
think that uh, nostalgia, of course, is a very natural medicine, natural cure at the times of panic. And at the moment, I see more of this happening in the U.S. than Russia. I mean, I'm following, of course, all kinds of musical uh, sites with a lot of contributions uh, from famous artists to the present situation and so on. I was especially touched by Neil Diamond singing uh, Sweet Caroline with with new lyrics about washing hands and (laughs) so on. But uh, maybe, maybe I'm I'm going uh, to wrong places. But in Russia, I see more of modern authors, the more young people singing aktualne. Uh, well. What's the English word for Zalobaitnevne? Uh, song, current songs about current situation. Like, uh, you know, there's a big hit uh, right now by a bard named Semyon Selipakov, yeah. uh, which already has uh, like five, six, seven million views. Then only today there's a new, a new song called Ahuyevshe by a popular band called Rapfak. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. in the video for Akhuyevshe, there's also me playing my electric ukulele at, ah. at, at Tallinn home. And, uh, and there are several other songs by young performers. So they are not, uh, not uh, uh, so much of a nostalgia thing, but rather they're kind of angry, angry young songs about about what the hell is uh, what the hell is going on and why why are the government leaving us alone and uh, and, and uh, you know what's actually what is this shit that is that is happening and uh, uh, I think I think I think that there's uh, well, I don't know about America. It seems it's it's, uh, it's quite different. But in Russia, in Russia, I think there's uh, not much room for nostalgic feelings. It's, so where, where I think it's, it's rather about anger. So Art, I think you're 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 right, and I think you hang out in much cooler circles than uh, most of us have the privilege to hang out in from from stateside from the U.S. But what we do have access to here. Unfortunately, maybe fortunately, unfortunately, is Channel One, Первый канал in Russia. So we get to see a lot of what the official Putin side of this nostalgia, which I would say is indeed there. And it's not uh, to make the distinction that, that this uh, scholar Bowen makes. It's not reflective. It's not that what made us feel good, but rather restorative nostalgia, which is let's remember how great we were and bring that back again. Does that sound familiar? Let's make Russia great again. Does that sound something? <laughs> so on Pierre Canal, I, I watched with great uh, interest and horror the uh, Vasmoya Marta concert that was given, the, the International Women's Day concert. So again, COVID was already very much part of the news, although Russia has consistently been keeping it down. At that time, there were no reported deaths in Russia on March 8th, zero, zero. Uh, at a time when China was in the thousands and Europe now, Italy in particular, were in the tens of thousands of of illnesses and and, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of deaths. Russia had nothing at the time. And so it was being kind of viewed as this 
almost sitoya miesta, the, the holy place where, uh, like the chosen land, uh, God would never let a virus hit the Russian territory. And the, this this concert, which was, of course, the, uh, the official Kremlin voice uh, channel one, uh, had all the old standards. There was Pugacheva, there were all uh, Rataru, all of the usual suspects from the 70s and 80s. And it was really creating this feel that you were sitting once again in the great Soviet Union of the late 70s, early 80s. I watched people of, of your, your our generation, yours and mine, sitting there with tears in their eyes as Ola Bugachova was singing Milion Alikhros, and I was thinking, goodness gracious, this is quite remarkable. It, it, the, the idea of feeling good about it, about yourself and so forth, is all about recreating what was so great about the Soviet Union, not about comforting um, the, 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 the national spirit of the time. It's quite remarkable. So you're, you, you're get, getting to see a lot more interesting things for, uh, than, than I'm getting to see going on in Russia right uh, now. <laughs> uh, well, sure, Tom, but uh, the nostalgic a- agenda, which may be called let's make Russia Soviet again, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's going on for already several years. Oh, absolutely. In all fields, in every respect. Yeah. And, and, and of course, you know, the more economic blues... Uh, Russian Federation faces, you know, the more, uh, you know, this Soviet soothing is, uh, is used by, uh, by the propaganda. Timmy, I just wanted to jump in and say that I, th- I think you may be maybe experiencing, shall we say, a thinking man's version of this kind of nostalgia because you posted a, a very interesting kind of uh, award in the style of some Soviet award where it says uh, veteran apocalypsisa, right? So a veteran <laughs> of the apocalypse. And we have Krach SSSR and Chernobyl. And so, I mean, maybe for, for you, for kind of, should we, shall we say, thinking post-Soviet people, is there kind of this feeling that I've already been through this before, a cataclysmic event like this, and so therefore I will survive? And I know you personally uh, talked about your experience going through cholera in southern Russia. So is that kind of what you're feeling? Yes, I think so. I just, uh, you know, by posting, you know, this, uh, these funny pictures, you know, I'm trying to somehow to entertain, <laughs> to entertain uh, my friends uh, on... Uh, on Facebook, and uh, you know, I think that uh, the general message there is that we've already been through a lot of nasty things, and so so please don't panic, uh, be be sensible, and uh, just make sure that uh, that you will not think that you know we are the the victims of uh, of uh, of the judgment day. So uh, <laughs> yes, I like I like this veteran of apocalypse. Uh, how do you call it? Patch. Yes, a patch. yes, patch. Yeah, I've attached uh, some personal memories to, to this when I was a hippie in '72 or '73. Yes, I was a patient in this Yalta 
uh, hospital for in, uh, for infection diseases, and uh, and this was exactly at the time of cholera. <laughs> Although I've had something far less okay. significant, but I was. Uh, I was watching, I was witnessing, you know, all those hysterical movements around me and thank God that I didn't get infected then. In general, this this conversation uh, as you two as music critics, and when we talk about nostalgia, and at least when we look at American movies, it's Queen, it's Elton John, what have you. These were not cool to write about as a music critic when they were contemporaries. But we look back in eras, it is only the heavy hitters. We don't, there's not a Mike and the Mechanics movie coming out anytime soon. At least that's not what gives us quite a bit of comfort. So I'm curious just what, how do you guys view that sort of push and pull between intellectualism, but in the importance of pop music? It is the most pervasive thing we have in society, but when it's happening, it's the least cool thing to be interested about or label yourself as a consumer of. So I'm curious how maybe that's different in Russia or the USSR than it's America. But it's always something I'm, you know, sort of confused about. Okay, well, uh, first of all, I wasn't a big fan of neither Elton John nor Queen uh, in the in the early and the mid seventies. At that time, I was already an underground kid. And I listened to Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart and King Crimson, Pink Floyd. I mean, uh, prog rock bands, psychedelic bands, and not this this pop shit or 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 glam uh, kind of type uh, rock music, uh, you know, of Elton John and and Queen. So, uh, therefore, therefore, I've seen both movies and I did not find them especially interesting. I mean, for my taste, a uh, film like Lieta with Victor Tso is far more interesting and entertaining and uh, for me, it's much deeper than those uh, biopics, which simply... You know, follow in every detail the glorious career of famous pop stars, which imitate, uh, you know, their costumes, their stage uh, gimmicks, and and all that. I, I just thought that you know, it's uh, it's not uh, it's not a very interesting story uh, for me. Uh, like say, The Doors by, I'm sorry, Oliver Stone. Uh, be- Putin supporter uh, was uh, was far more interesting because it was a film not about uh, a particular rock star Jim Morrison. It was more like a film about about all those uh, turbulent and crazy and controversial uh, times of the sixties. So uh, I think I think that. Uh, Back then, back in the 20th century, back in the 60s and the 70s, well, at least those two decades, uh, of course, pop music was considered as something much more significant uh, than it is seen now. I think that, uh, you know, by many, actually by millions, uh, pop music, especially rock music, was uh, seen as a kind of... uh, experience, maybe even a religious experience, 
you know, not just entertainment or something you can dance to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm afraid that this is not the case. Uh, this is not the case right now. So, uh, uh, you know, right now, even music by uh, by very, very good artists and, and, uh, and great poets and so on is taken more like, uh, like well, some kind of easy stuff, like a background music. I mean, you put on... Uh, uh, your uh, headphones and and you write uh, text messages and at the same time you listen uh, to Bob Dylan and things like that. By the way, Bob Dylan's uh, song about JFK assassination, which was made public literally like four or five days ago, it's it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic piece of poetry. Uh, but again, I'm sure that uh, by most listeners right now, it is oh, it's just an old man uh, mumbling, you know, his uh, blues lyrics about heroes of the past, you know, nothing special. You know, it's not taken like Bob Dylan's songs were perceived in the 60s when they were, you know, uh, seen as, uh, as a revelation uh, by many. So, well, I don't know whether I answered your question or not, but, but I just, uh, you know, said something. I think you answered more interesting questions than I did. <laughs> <laughs> If, if we're ready, uh, we can we can continue to come back to music at some point. But I would like each of our guests to put on their kind of a political commentator cap for a second. So, Artemi, you can be Jaji uh, Choma. Uh, Tom, you can obviously uh, put on whichever uh, political commentary hat you'd like. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious how we think uh, this virus is going to affect kind of the Putin regime and uh, just kind of the political situation in Russia. I was on a call with the Atlantic Council this morning, and there was, uh, which is a DC think tank, and there was significant back and forth between uh, experts who thought that the virus was actually going to be give a great rallying effect for, for the regime and kind of strengthen uh, Putin and kind of give yet another chance for the government to show itself to be kind of strong and to bring the people together like it's the great patriotic war again versus other people who thought that it would be a catastrophe and that Putin would, you know, d- demonstrate himself incompetent or something like that. So, and I think that there's fantastic arguments for for both sides. And so, I'm I'm just curious, kind of what what you guys think about this. No, given your background on you know mobilization and youth and the way that these things can all kind of play into a political change. Okay, okay. Well, no later than tomorrow, I'll have a streaming session uh, at my YouTube channel. And uh, I always ask uh, the viewers to send me some questions in advance so I could uh, start, uh, start streaming with their questions. And then, of course, they will, they will put more questions during uh, the session. And I've already got about 30 or 40 questions. And nearly all of them are about this very thing that you're asking about, about what will be the consequences of COVID-19 for Putin's regime? Will it 
break it or will it make it stronger? And I don't want to pretend that I know the answer. Of course, the situation is so confused. It's, it's confused everywhere. Nobody knows what will happen uh, with economy. Nobody knows what will happen with healthcare. Nobody knows nothing. Well, first of all, nobody knows when the bloody things uh, ends up. So I think I think that this is now uh, an issue uh, where one can only make all kinds of all kinds of guesses and uh, measure these pros and contrasts. One thing that is definitely playing against. Putin is uh, the worsening of uh, the economic situation and uh, the fact uh, that he apparently doesn't look like a strong leader. Putin is lost. Putin looks miserable. Everyone sees it. Well, of course, it doesn't come uh, as a surprise to most Russians because uh, Putin has never been an able crisis manager. You know, look at his behavior at the time of Kursk submarine, Nordost, Beslan, and so on. He is, uh, well, he's really weak at, at, at being uh, a leader in uh, under tough circumstances. So this all plays against him. Then, uh, of course, there are also some things that plays for him, and this is the fact that people are simply, you know, they feel uh, totally panicky, and and of course, uh, you know, if people are panicking, then they need a firm hand, then they need some some uh, paternal care, and so on. So psychologically, psychologically, I think the virus may play for Putin. But uh, materially and economically, it, it definitely plays against. So who will win in this fight uh, of two elements? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But I definitely think that uh, the situation in the near half a year will, in Russia will change drastically. Another thing uh, that uh, all political analysts uh, note after uh, Putin's yesterday's message is that, well, he apparently gave far more power to the region, to the regions of, 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 of Russian Federation, uh, which means that uh, now all those governors who've been almost uh, invisible before and who simply uh, followed uh, the orders from Kremlin. Now, uh, apparently, uh, they've been asked by helpless Putin to make their own decisions. And this also can lead uh, anywhere. And that's actually quite similar to what's happening in America, of Trump sort of deferring decision-making to the governors, because I think no one really wants to make a call on this because no one knows what's happening. No one knows when it's going to end. It's just easier to defer. It's sort of in the same line, though. I read some of your 
writing at the turn of the century, and you talk about Putin's voodoo, how he kind of just has this mystique about him. Do you think it's possible, so, you know, with the potential 12-year extension of Putin's rule, can you have this sort of voodoo as a political leader in your late 70s? Was this kind of just Putin as a new, youthful Russian leader? Do you think it's possible for that to continue, coronavirus or not? <laughs> now, what do you mean by voodoo? I'm using your words against you, I guess. Uh, you know, uh-huh. he just kind of had this... Uh, non-charisma charisma. I don't know how to describe it. He yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some kind of mysterious good luck. Uh, well, I think I think Putin's good luck uh, has expired a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I think it has expired uh, in 2014. I think that the invasion of Ukraine was, was his fatal mistake. If he stopped uh, at the Crimean Peninsula, then, then he probably would uh, would be much better now. But invading Eastern Ukraine and the case of uh, the Malaysian uh, flight MH17, the following sanctions and you know general absolute disrespect for uh, for Russia. In the outside world, I think I think uh, that this uh, you know this was the uh, the beginning of the end for uh, for Putin and and of his uh, of his voodoo uh, abilities, and I think that since then it's going it's going from bad to worse for Mr. Putin. I mean, he still make uh, uh, steal billions and put them in their pockets. He still may be in power. And and have loyal army and and a national guard and and so on, but apparently he has lost most of his uh, reputation abroad, and he is very quickly losing popularity with uh, with the majority of Russians, even those who you know who who were never into into politics and who were. Never even thinking about about protesting. So I just wanted to say a couple of things, uh, actually, in response to Artemis' uh, comments on Putin and and whether uh, whether Putin wins or loses in the COVID. Uh, COVID-19 issue uh, in a similar vein, whether or not Trump wins in the COVID-19 situation, because I find the two in similar and yet very different circumstances uh, in the two countries. Very few of you, and I'm curious actually if even among the the five of us gathered here now, um, knew that two days ago, uh, since we're all Russianists here of one kind or another, we probably would say yes to this, but uh, two days ago, uh, a large Russian freighter uh, plane arrives in the in New York with supplies to uh, to help out New York City's COVID crisis. It was covered very marginally by the news, very marginally. I've talked to th- three dozen people via Zoom in the last. 48 hours, no one had heard that Russia had brought this aid to the U.S. Now, in any other political situation other than the age of Trump, 
the idea that humanitarian aid, especially if something like medical supplies would be coming to our largest metropolis in the country, would be viewed as a sign of incredible weakness and incredible incompetence of our government to take care of the population of the single largest uh, city in the country. And yet, not only do we hear little from the press, the media in general, about how Russia did this act of uh, seemingly generosity, but clearly a massive PR move on Putin's part to be bringing, sending aid to the United States, to to the United States uh, at this crisis time. But the Trump supporters who at any other time would say, the Russians helping us, are you kidding? Send it back. If it were Obama, send it back. We don't want this this tainted aid from that communist country coming to our shores. Nothing, not a word, radio silence. And indeed, I think it was a kind of, I'm using that, that incident from 48 hours ago as a metaphor for the whole PR spin that both presidents, Putin and Trump, are making this uh, catastrophe, this disaster, this pandemic, this international crisis into a play for their own success. Uh, the reason in reference to something Tom said a few minutes ago, that I think that uh, Trump continuously, I keep uh, conflating the two names because it's kind of become Putin and Trump separated at birth, that Trump continuously sends everything back to the states is specifically because as long as things don't get federalized, things like, for example, invoking the uh, uh, the, the, the nationalization of things like the, the production and distribution of emergency um, uh, PPEs or um, uh, everything from, yeah, the face masks and uh, ventilators, all of these kinds of things, and the production, indeed, of an, an antidote to the COVID virus is because as long as it remains in private hands, there are profits being made. And I hate to sound like the Marxist that I am, but it's true. Uh, Trump is a, con a consummate Marxist, and he, a consummate, I should say, capitalist, and will c continuously support his cronies. How was it yesterday, everybody, by the way, that we hit nearly, uh, well, we did hit the 10 million mark of unemployment filings in this country, and the stock market rises by 500 points? How does that happen? If anyone truly still believes that the stock market is going up because of my pension or anyone else's pension, forget about it. This is all about money going into the pockets of the same people uh, that, that got Trump elected in the first place. And so that's a long-winded way of saying Trump is using the COVID crisis, as is Putin, to their political advantages to what end they can. I don't think that in the, in the wash it's going to help either of them. Uh, my only concern about the U.S. is, and I ask myself this question every day, Where's Joe Biden? Do we ever even see him? Do we ever even hear him give us anything, any kind of statement about the situation? No. So our leading candidate for the Democrats is basically persona abscondidus for these last nearly two months now. I actually hear more from, we hear more from Bernie Sanders. Every now and then we'll get a statement from him on the situation. So I think in short, uh, both Putin and Trump are using the COVID crisis to their uh ostensible advantage, but I don't think either of them, I agree with Artomi, I think they're both going to wind up coming out as losers uh, when it's all when it's all said and done. Let me just add uh, uh, one thing to to the Putin aid uh, to New York City. I think the scandal is not over there yet, because oh, oh. Uh, it's been revealed today 
that a lot of equipment which has been brought by the Russian plane uh, was produced by a company belonging to Rostech, which is under sanctions. <laughs> Even more than that. Uh, uh. The, the organization called uh, Russian Fund of Priority Investments, who have paid for part of, uh, of the shipment, they are also under sanctions. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, the move on Putin's side here was even more vicious. Yeah. Uh, he knew that these companies are under sanctions. Of course, America wouldn't send this aid back because, well, apparently it does need uh, some stuff for the uh, suffering New York City. Very but much. then they could say, well, you have de facto violated the sanctions uh, regime. So let's do it the URE as well. And this is what they've tried at the United Nations uh, later today or yesterday. Yeah, I think of, well, first of all, it's probably the first time in my life that I like really wanted to know where Joe Biden was. Usually I'm very comfortable not knowing where he is. Where's but- Joe? I would say of all things, the loss here, it's the death of economic conservatism. Like, like you said, we're violating sanctions and no one's talking about it. And we're using the Fed like a piggy bank. I mean, thinking of Trump in 2016, basically currently espousing, you know, modern monetary theory, just printing money without any concern on what's going to happen to it. We're basically using the Fed as a hedge fund, leveraging $400 billion into four to five trillion in credit. And the stock market is fine. We're fine with 10 million unemployed. I think there's also just this freeze to life. No one is calling in their loans. There aren't margin calls. People are pretending like they're liquid when they're not. And I think right now it's so hard to make predictions of what's going to come next because politically, economically, socially, we're just, we're frozen. Everyone is quarantined to an extent. Tom, I just would add to what you're saying, which was brilliantly stated, by the way, you would have, you would have, that would have been a, a, a stellar A plus paper in any good uh, <laughs> political economics course. Uh, well, that just a pass. There are no grades anymore. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll change it all to pass fail. <laughs> but, but honestly, I'm, I, not to sound uh, obviously like a, 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 not hysterical, but historical alarmist here, every symptom you just described was symptomatic both of the Weimar government in Germany and of the U.S. economy back in 1929. As I say, I'm not, I'm not, we, we don't have the mechanisms in place any longer that a, a, a crash of the magnitude of the, of the great crash of 29 could happen again, but an analogous, a sort of analog to what happened um, all those decades ago is exactly under the circumstances you just described. Minus the virus. Minus the virus, that's right. Although we did have the Dust Bowl. Yes. In, <laughs> in between those two, I think I'd rather be the U.S. in 1929 than the Weimar, which is... Sure. And, and Tom, just to kind of carry that thread even further, it's not just, you know, kind of, right. I mean, what did, what did those situations lead to uh, in Weimar, Germany, and in, in 1929 um, America? It led to uh, emergency measures in the political sphere. And I think that's the other thing that we're going to see, right? 
the moving of election elections, the cancellation of elections. Yes. Uh, I know that you know Putin obviously recently changed the constitution and was supposed to put his changes up for this kind of you know uh, meaningless vote. And there was this idea that people would would protest the the vote, right? Boycott, boycott and instead bro- protest on the day of the vote. But but now that obviously can't happen because right. people are barred from protesting. Um, so it's a very kind of lucky uh, way for a lot of these leaders to avoid the protest to their action. That's kind of the sinister nature of this pandemic is that it's going to lead to these economic consequences that, that would normally cause massive street mobilization, but that can't happen because it's a pandemic. So it's really sinister in that sense. Indeed. Indeed. So we're coming up towards the end of our hour. This is not a conversation I have any interest in cutting off, but for our listeners' sake, I think we have to. Dr. Garza, you're a regular now. You're terrific as always. Artemi, we'd love to have you back as soon as we can. This is so much fun. Uh, do you guys have any lingering thoughts, last observations, maybe a new skill you've picked up in quarantine that you just want to share? Maybe start needle pointing or something. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually been doing a lot more uh, long overdue writing that I've needed to do, which is a good thing. But but I, I will admit that I have uh, discovered the, uh, the joy of of woodworking, uh, just kind of to for, to kind of calm my nerves a bit, and have been working on re redoing a lot of the uh, wood trim in the house just on my own. Oh, just wow. Just because, right? Because it's there. Mm-hmm. It does, didn't need it, but why not? And that's purely about. Um, I think actually, there you go. This is going into the nostalgia argument we started this whole conversation with is we go back at times like these to find the things that give us a little bit of comfort that just make us feel, give us a warm fuzzy in our heart and in our gut. And, and we, we get by day by day. Well, I think we're all uh, capitalizing on this huge amount of uh, time to kill. Mm-hmm. And let's not kill this time, but uh, use it for a good purpose. Uh, we are watching a lot of movies that we have missed in our lives, uh, you know, starting from uh, the Italian neorealism of the late 40s and the 50s <laughs> and uh, <laughs> up, to recent, up to recent films, uh, American, Russian, uh, European, everything. And I have also, you know, when in London in February, I bought an electric ukulele. And and I'm now and I'm, I'm now playing it uh, with a delay pedal, so I'm producing <laughs> all kinds of underground rock sounds <laughs> with an electric ukulele. And uh, well, generally speaking, you know, I've wrote about it in my in my posts in Facebook and Twitter that uh, suddenly, suddenly, despite all the really tragic things that are going on around us. Uh, it is it is possible to turn all this into into something good, yeah. and uh, and let's all use this opportunity. Yeah, and stay well, of course, we, which is absolutely crucial. Here, here, I agree. Cheers, <laughs> cheers. cheers. <laughs> And regards to your family, uh, your friends, and uh, to the glorious city of Austin and Mm. the University of Texas. Yes. 
you so much. Well, let's all jo- enjoy some Desica, Rossellini, some Italian neorealism. And- yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Bye-bye. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.